I'm Seth for Privacy, and thanks so much for joining us on the journey to sovereignty. We're beyond thrilled to have a place for us to chat about all things sovereignty, the why and how of reclaiming your digital sovereignty, and to give you all a chance to chime in, ask questions, and join the conversation. Journey to Sovereignty is brought to you by Foundation, where we build Bitcoin-centric tools that empower you to reclaim your digital sovereignty. This includes our Passport Hardware Wallet and Envoy mobile app. If you've heard about ways that Bitcoin nodes can track you or theoretical attacks against your node, we've got you covered in today's episode. We're going to dive into how network privacy works in Bitcoin, what nodes can learn about you, and dive into an active attack against your node that's been going on for the past few months. As always, I'm joined by Bitcoin Q&A, Head of Customer Experience here at Foundation, but we're also joined today by someone I highly respect, Timo, otherwise known as 0xB10C on Twitter. He's been doing fantastic development and research work on Bitcoin and is the perfect person to help us dive into network privacy today and explain an ongoing attack against Bitcoiners' nodes right now. How's it going, guys? Hey. Thanks for having me. Yeah, doing well, Seth. Thanks for uh, having us on and uh, pleasure to be here with such a esteemed company as well. So looking forward to this one. Yeah, really going to be a, a blast and a lot to cover today. So we will probably go a little bit over the, the hour mark, um, but we'll keep it under an hour and a half just as a heads up. Um, so the bulk of today, we are going to cover that ongoing attack that you've discovered, Timo. But before we jump into that, I do want to lay the groundwork for how Bitcoin node privacy works at a basic level so we can better understand the the what, the why, and the how of the current attack that, that you've been covering. Um, so first off, I want to talk about what information the Bitcoin node your wallet actually connects to learns about your transactions. What, what are the key things that they can really learn about users when you're connecting to a node from your wallet? Yeah, I guess uh, I'll kick off, cover off the basics, and uh, Timo can chime in with with all of the stuff that I uh, I miss off. So, uh, yeah, to to interact with Bitcoin um, via any wallet, you you need to do so through a node, um, and if you do that through your own node, then um, that's one of the best and most private ways you can do that. Uh, most people starting out in the space obviously aren't going to be able to have the technical know how or patience to be able to run a node. So, um, yeah, so. Whenever you, you're interacting with Bitcoin, you need to do that, to do that through a node. Um, and depending on which node you do that, you'll be sharing information with either yourself as your own node runner or with a third party, whoever it is that's hosting that node. So some of the high level stuff that uh, a, a node uh, that you're connecting your wallet to, uh, some of the information that they'd learn um, is obviously when your, uh, your, your wallet balances, um, your addresses that are used, uh, the addresses that you're sending to, or in fact, all of the uh, transactional information that anybody could look at um, on a re- on a regular block explorer. Uh, so all of the information that's contained within that transaction. Uh, if your node has uh, not been run over the Tor network, which thankfully uh, most of the, the run at home nodes do now, um, then the node runner will learn your IP address, um, which can also give your approximate geographical location, which theoretically could also be tied back to your uh, in real life identity with your ISP, your internet service provider as well. So um, if you're not using your own node, then there is uh, quite a lot of information that you're sharing by default just to do the very basic thing of load a wallet balance or to make a, a Bitcoin transaction to another Bitcoin user. 
And what information, when you do make that transaction, what information does the broader Bitcoin network learn about the source of that transaction? I mean, I know like IP address isn't directly tied to transactions on chain. So there's no information about what node published a transaction or something like that. But um, what are the what are the pieces of information that the broader Bitcoin network can learn about the source of a transaction? And, and why is that? Yeah, I, I guess I take this one. Um, so when you receive or actually when you broadcast a transaction, you tell other peers you're connected to, hey, I have this transaction um, and do you want it? And the peer says, hey, I don't know. I don't know it. Um, please send it to me. Um, and if you're someone or if, if you know it, you know, OK, if I don't know this transaction, I, I haven't seen it before. Um, and if you're connected to enough people, then you can say with, with some certainty, um, maybe this is where the transaction originated, where it was broadcast from. Obviously, you don't know really if the same person really owns this IP address or belongs to this IP address, but you can make guesses over time um, and can find out um, if that's really, um, if these are really connected. Yeah, and ultimately that that function is necessary for the broader network to properly learn about a transaction. I mean, that's that's part of the the gossip protocol that's used to ensure that miners can see what transactions are available, and it's a vital function of the network and and the core way that the peer to peer network works. Um, but obviously, it can reveal some information about the source node of a transaction, not intended to, but that can be one of the the side effects there. Um, right, and th there are protections against it. Like it's not it's not super super easy to do it. There are some some randomness and timings, uh, depending if you're if you're sending a transaction to an outbound or inbound peer, um, it's a bit different. Um, but there are papers and research that that say, um, hey, we can I don't know up to thirty percent or so of the transactions we can link to the IP address. If that's true in the real world, I'm not sure, um, but it might be. Yeah, there's at least a, a probability involved. It's not a direct deterministic link between source node and transaction for anyone watching the correct, network. Correct. Uh, but it's yeah. one of those things where they can make guesses, and if they do specific things, they can improve the the percentage chance of them guessing correctly. Um, and for most people, that the idea of a privacy issue with their node is something that's been really purely theoretical. I mean, there's been research about different attacks that could happen against Bitcoin nodes about how transactions could be tied to their their source node. A, a lot of work has gone into that from the research perspective, but there hasn't been a whole lot of digging into actual active attacks. Um, but you've been working on uncovering what is actually an active real-life attack going on today against anyone running a Bitcoin node, Timo. So I'd love it if you can walk us through how you uncovered this and, and what the core behavior you're seeing going on is. Okay. Um... I start up sort of way back. So I've been I've been looking at how entities or people behave on the Bitcoin network for a while. And this is not only the P2P networks, it's also the mempool. And I looked at how, for example, uh, big wallets use the mempool and, and or big exchanges use the mempool and what they do and so on. And at some point is I started looking at um, what peers connect to my Bitcoin core node and a bit of observability in there. Um, and from there on, I saw that some IP addresses connect really frequently, and especially frequently when my peer slots, like my inbound peer slots, are actually full. Um, this led to me seeing like 
I think at some one point seven seven hundred connections per per minute uh, inbound, and that's just got, got me asking, and I looked into it more. And um, over time, it got clear to me that this is actually the entity we're talking about today, uh, the linking line, which I call it. Um, and there are, um, yeah, a few, a few different things they're doing. Um, and one of them is there. They open quite a bit, quite a few connections. And I think that's not really what they want to do. But in some cases, they open like these 700, 700 connections per, per uh, minute. Uh, which I saw and said, okay, this looks interesting. What are they doing? And um, can can we find out what's actually happening in here? Yeah. So um, looking at it, I recorded some of the connections or some of the traffic that um, that, that reached me on my node. And over time, I think this was like four or five days. And over time, saw like. Definitely a pattern emerging there. Um, some really short-lived connections um, that just connect really briefly after after like receiving, hey, um, I'm a node and I'm alive. Um, and others, uh, like other connections staying open for longer and just listening for transactions we tell them. Yeah, it's interesting that they seem to kind of take in a naive approach or maybe even lazy approach to connecting where they, they do create far more connections that are necessary for them to actually perform the surveillance that it, it seems like they're doing. Do you, do you have any kind of thoughts on, on why they might do that? If it was just simple or if there's any kind of extra purpose behind the many, many, many connections that they create as, as part of trying to surveil? Uh, I don't know. I don't think uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm leaning a bit out of, out of window right now, but I'm not, I'm, I'm saying they're not so sophisticated. Um, in, in some way, they could definitely improve what they're doing. Um, should, should I walk you through how, how this works? Yeah, um, yeah. I think it'd be yeah. great to to learn from a, a basic level kind of okay, how yeah. they're able to get information from nodes uh, just as an inbound connection, not even as an active outbound connection right, from, from right. different nodes in the network. So so the entity linking line, I call it, starts off by just opening a TCP connection to your, to your Bitcoin node. And... Um, there is this rule that the, the inbound connection, like the one opening connection, also sends a version message. Uh, a version message in, in Bitcoin is used in the in the handshake between two nodes. Um, and the handshake is there to determine like the version both nodes are familiar with speaking. So they, they speak the same language um, and know the same messages. Um, and in this version message, the entity uses, like they, they said, for example, a fake user agent like to some really old and obscure Bitcoin J wallets, for example, which is, you, you can clearly see that. And that's it, definitely something that's odd. Um, why wouldn't they hide as, I don't know, some recent version of Bitcoin Core or other wallet? Um, and also they, they have a few things. For, for example, you, you tell the other um, node which hide you're on, which block hide you're on, and they seem to be lagging behind the real block highs um, in, in different con configurations. Um, that's also one, one thing you can see. And yeah, th there is also like a flag in there in the version message, um, which says, hey, I, I want to receive transactions from you, like new transactions. And they set the flag. And yeah, um, 
once your node or once my node processes the, the the version message from the peer, my node decides, okay, I I can speak the same version. I send back uh, a version message too, and also acknowledge that they received the version message. And at this point, um, it's an entity's turn to either say, hey, I acknowledge um, the connection and be good. Um, but um, what happens is for, I think, 80% of the connections actually, um, the entity never sends a, like the acknowledgement, the viewer act, um, and just closes connection. Um, for the other like 18% or so, they they complete the ascent shake and say um, and they don't say okay you know we know if we can talk and um, Bitcoin Core sends a few few uh, messages related to um, like um, what what services um, the the node offers for example saying hey I want to participate in compact block um, relay and um, also sends a ping message and the entity responds to the ping message. Um, but other than that, we, we don't hear back from the from the entity anymore. Um, it just sits there and listens for, I don't know, up to two and a half minutes. Um, and in some cases, even longer. And so they go through the process of establishing that handshake, connecting to your node, telling your node a, a fake user agent to essentially subscribe to your node and get your node to tell them about things that it knows. Uh, and you broke it down in your blog into into what specifically it tells them, but it's part of that inventory that your node will will describe to them, which is things like transactions when you first see them, blocks when you first see them, things like that. Um, do you think that that's the core of what they're trying to get to is build those connections so that then they can get information from your node about basically what its view of the network is? Based on based on what I've seen, I think yes, that that's what one could interpret and they, they are trying to do. Um, I don't know if it's really their, their focus. I, I think so, but I, I don't know. Um, um, I think they could leave these connections open for quite long for, for far longer. like uh, nothing stops them from from leaving the connection open for an hour or so. Um, I don't know why they're closing it after two and a half minutes. Um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it's definitely one of the odd pieces of behavior. Is I don't know if it's it's laziness or there's some aspect of it that just doesn't doesn't make sense that they they don't try to maintain connections for longer. But since they are spamming connections so often, I guess that does likely mean that they have an active connection to you through one of the IP addresses used at at most of the the given points in time. Right. They they also have like they also open multiple connections. I have people reporting like ten plus connections they have from the same entity. Um, yeah, makes sense. Um, you, you obviously have a better chance of receiving transactions, but yeah, yeah, <laughs> I'm not sure. Uh, it's it's a bit weird um, the behavior. Um, also, what they also do is in some messages they say, okay, hey. Um, Send me other addresses of node on the network, so um, they they fill up their I'd say database of other nodes to connect to. So eventually they they hope I think they hope to find all um, listening peers on the network. But um, I've also heard from people that say I don't have any connection from them and I've never seen this peer and I haven't banned it, so I'm not sure. 
uh, how good of a job they are doing doing this. Yeah, and and that's one of the weird things with a network like Bitcoin is is obviously we want it to be peer to peer, we want it to be permissionless, we want it to be distributed and decentralized, but that does open up risks like this where anyone can run a node, whether they're a good actor or malicious. Um, so why why is it important or why is it possible that an adver- adversary can spin up nodes like these and, and make malicious connections? I think a lot of people just assume when we're talking surveillance like this that uh, we can just, just ban them and move on. But within the Bitcoin network, obviously, it's it's intended to be permissionless. So why is it possible that, that an adversary can actually do this today? Um, right. We, we want this network to be open. We want, you mentioned it, we, we want this to be permissionless. We don't want to gatekeep anyone from, from joining the network. And we actually don't know, like, this could be could be some client, like, I, I don't think it is, but it could be some client that is mis- misconfigured or um, is broken in some way. And we don't want to shut it out just because it's broken. This could cause in some point, maybe like, a split between the nodes on the network saying, hey, I won't connect to you because um, you're, you're you're behaving slightly weird, um, slightly in a way I don't understand why you're doing it. Um, and we don't necessarily want, want that to happen. We want to communicate as, as much as possible where we can, um, given to, to a point where, where we say, okay, this node is actually feeding us malicious data or sending us weird stuff. Then we we're going to close the, the connection. But uh, other than that, we want to try to stay open uh, for anyone to join. Yeah, ultimately, it would be a a permission and centralized network if someone had control over what a node has to look like who joins the network, which would make it easier to protect against attacks like this. But obviously, it would have the the side effect that you couldn't just spin up a node and join the network without anyone's permission, without emailing someone without doing anything like that, which is a, a key aspect of how Bitcoin actually works and, and how we can do this in a way that doesn't rely on a central entity or government. Um, and it's been interesting watching like the the Tor network who have had an ongoing civil and, and distributed denial of service attack for the last seven or eight months at least. Um, they have similar problem where the, the network has to be permissionless in order for it to, to work and to provide anonymity in their case rather than decentralized money. Um, but because it is distributed and decentralized and permissionless, it's very hard to prevent these types of attacks because you really do have to kind of assume goodwill initially of nodes that join the network uh, and then watch their behavior. And maybe from there, you can ban them on an individual peer level. But um, it makes things a lot trickier when we when we can't just centralize and control this sort of thing. So a lot of benefit comes with it, but it's a clear trade-off too. All right, and we want to make it a bit harder. For example, we say if you're... Like we don't connect to to um, I, I'd say um, outbound connections are don't go uh, prefer, preferably don't go to nodes in the same data center, for example. So we want to to make sure that we, we can do the maximum um, in terms of protecting who like who we connect to and and, and so on. But at some point, obviously, like a really motivated attacker could to like a really big civil attack controlling nodes in like all over the globe and yeah get us to co- only connect to them and, and so on um, but we try to we try to spread out our, our connections that we make uh, as far as possible yeah, and because this this specific entity doesn't seem to be seeking to be the outbound nodes that you're connecting to you, you don't think that this is also an attempted civil attack where they are trying to be the 
the majority of the peers that you're connecting to on the network and thus provide malicious data. It seems to be just kind of a, an inbound side surveillance uh, effort rather than the, the kind of civil attack that is another common commonly talked about attack on a, a permissionless network like this. Uh, yeah, correct. Uh, I don't think I don't think they at least okay. Let, let me clarify. At least on the IP addresses and the IP address blocks, uh, I've looked at they're not um, executive inbound connections at all, um, and they're actually doing like 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 using the the ports that you would host, for example, your Bitcoin node on, for example, the HTTP port. Um, they're using this port to open up connections as well, um, which is not default in most Linux systems, but um, you can do if you configure it to do so. So I don't think they're using the same IP addresses at least um, to um, accept inbound connections and, and be your uh, civil node, be a civil node um, for the your outbounds you create. Um, I've heard from um, a Monero developer um that actually yeah let, let's actually speak about this um the same entity has been opening connections on the monero network as, network as well um and there they send you information about their own ip addresses or some of the ip addresses um you should open connections to um which is also interesting and i think like hearing that the, the entity is active on both networks, makes it um, far more likely to be someone that isn't doing just some experiment, um, but also really like looking to learn about the network and, and transactions and, and stuff on the network, maybe even for like a financial gain or something. Yeah, if you've just kind of accidentally built a broken Bitcoin client, you wouldn't also be connecting to Monero nodes out there, which is a totally different peer-to-peer -peer approach, different protocol, different uh, API. It's, it's completely separate to the fact that those same IP addresses have been known to actively attack Monero nodes as well in the past. And I think, I think that's going back a couple of years now that we've been seeing these IP addresses in the Monero space where, like you said, these nodes have been a, essentially attempting to Sybil attack nodes by providing you a peer list that is only their malicious peers to try to get your node to only connect to their nodes. And then they can ultimately use that to try and surveil the, uh, essentially tie the transaction ID, which even in Monero, it doesn't reveal a lot of information, but it does reveal at least when that transaction ID was sent and potentially the source node as well. Um, obviously Monero has some broader protections because we implement Dandelion++ there, which maybe we can get into a little bit at the end of today's chat, but um, it's a very similar attack from a different angle where they're still trying to surveil transactions and tie them to IP addresses and source nodes, but they're doing it in a way that's more akin to a traditional Sybil attack where they're trying to become all of your outbound peers, if at all possible, so they have a better chance of uh, being able to see the the origin of a, of a transaction there. So it was, it was crazy, and I'm, I'm glad that you reached out to me about that because it ended up being a really good connection around this topic. Um, but it's interesting that that same entity has been attacking both Monero and now Bitcoin from the same IP addresses uh, with somewhat analogous behavior as well. Right. Yeah, behavior is a bit different, but uh, definitely similar. Yeah. Um, one idea could be that this is maybe, like one theory is that these IP address ranges are um, VPN endpoints, and they are just two companies or two different customers of this VPN endpoint um, using the same ranges. Um, and
and yeah, definitely, definitely possible. Uh, we don't know yet, or we might never know. Yeah, yeah, it will, it will be hard to ascertain if it is for sure the same entity, but it also has a pretty obscure VPN service, which would again indicate that it's likely the same entity, even if they are using the same VPN. But yeah, it's it's something where we can't narrow it down exactly. We really can just kind of hypothecate on on what could be happening there. Um, but I, I want to dive a little bit into the practical implications of this. If we are assuming that they are attempting to surveil the things that we're doing with our Bitcoin nodes, the transactions we're sending, what do they learn about us and how we use Bitcoin when they're performing this attack against our nodes? So one thing besides learning about like um, your, your linking your, your transactions to your IP addresses. Obviously, like if they open frequent connections, they can check um, when you go offline, when you come back online. Um, when you upgrade your node, for example, they also see if you're like on a pruned node or not. Um, but that's all like that's all metadata and that's not actually too too hard to find out um, over other ways. Like like for example there is the BitNode side or so um, that lists um, peers and, and the uptime and downtime and other people like uh, checking for for connectivity on the network and so on. Um, that's something else I find out. Um, I think the really main thing here that could they could find out is like how the transaction propagates to the network, where they originate, um, and who sent them from which IP address. Yeah, and ultimately, even if they only learn the source IP and the transaction ID that's tied to it, I think what a lot of people forget is that that can be combined with other on-chain surveillance to provide a, a very broad picture of a user's usage of Bitcoin. Um, so that's, I mean, this is something that we speculated about for a long time. I think in 2015, there was a big fuss over Chainalysis supposedly doing this type of attack and trying to tie IP addresses to wallet clusters on-chain. Um, but it's one of those situations where the the default transparency of Bitcoin can be even more harmful when an entity can perform this type of active attack and tie a source IP to a transaction ID and then ultimately to a wallet cluster and make a very holistic picture about someone's usage of Bitcoin. Um, and ultimately, IP address may or may not be a big deal. I mean, if it's your your if you're running a Bitcoin node at home, you're not running it behind Tor. Ultimately, they're getting your home IP address, which gives rough geographical location, what ISP you use. It can give a lot of information about you. Um, but if you're using like a, a good non-logging VPN, at, at worst, it reveals that VPN provider that you're using. If you're running only behind Tor, all it reveals is that you're running behind Tor. It doesn't reveal any true IP address. So that, that definitely can vary, and there are protections about that that I want to I wanna dive into next. But um, but there's a lot that goes into that because it's not just this standalone piece of data. Uh, it's often that this type of data, especially by like chain analysis, chain analysis companies who can sell this data to the highest bidder, sell it to law enforcement, governments, um, whoever they want to, essentially, they can combine this IP address and transaction ID data with other on-chain tracing because then they can look at the data within that transaction, like the inputs, the outputs, the amounts, when you sent it, uh, and build a, a much bigger picture uh, around you there. But anything else to add on like the, the practical implications of this type of surveillance? Um, I, I think there there is a bit we don't know yet about that like the, the companies are doing. Um, maybe we will learn about in a year, a few years or so. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely think this is a possibility that the people are doing this and have been doing for quite a while. 
um, on the network. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and we, we touched a little bit on the possible incentives or motives here, um, but there was there anything else you wanted to mention there, Timo, about like what some maybe legitimate situations here could be uh, or who maybe doesn't need to do this because they have visibility into connections between source IP and transaction in other ways? Of course, like they, they are researchers and, and like um, academics that uh, do these kind of experiments from time to time. Um, maybe they want to write a paper about like transaction propagation, or they have some monitoring for transaction propagation. And actually, I've recently seen a conversation from a few Bitcoin developers um, about uh, the topic of like why is transaction propagation slowing down a bit. And they use stats like these, um, or collected in similar ways, probably um, to to figure out like how to to improve it and at least see it and discuss it that there are problems. Um, because like higher higher propagation times transaction pro, uh, propagation times could indicate um, a problem um, with the network um, or with a recent change uh, in the code. So um, yeah, we actually to some degree want to be aware of of um, yeah these transaction propagation uh, statistics. Um, we don't necessarily want to bind or link uh, IP addresses to a specific transaction though. Uh, we don't we don't care about where it's coming from. We more care about um, if you see, if everything is working uh, correctly, or if there's maybe something broken. And obviously, on the other hand, you have um, ISPs um, that currently can read all your traffic of your uh, of your Bitcoin node um, because um, our traffic is completely unencrypted. So. Uh, hope to have a P2P version two soon, um, BIP to 24, uh, 3, uh, 24, um, which encrypts your traffic of your Bitcoin node, um, speaking with other, other nodes. Um, so at least ISPs and, and governments um, can't uh, yeah, check when you're sending and, and receiving like uh, to the yeah, I'm excited for the the new peer to peer encryption BIP that has been pushed through and and is possible now. Uh, it's definitely someone I want to have on the on the podcast soon as well because they've been doing really good work around how we can protect ourselves more broadly from from ISPs or or nation states. It doesn't protect against like the kind of famed global passive adversary that sometimes we talk about when we talk privacy, but it provides a lot of protection against the very easy low hanging fruit of just monitoring traffic across the network uh, and seeing what you're noticing to other nodes. So that will definitely be a, a big improvement there. At least makes it a lot harder and more expensive to, to do these uh, uh, monitoring and observing of, of like the whole traffic on the, on the Bitcoin network, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I want to dive into the the, now we've kind of seen the practical implications of it, what this entity could be seeing about kind of your node, your transactions. And I want to give people really practical, actionable steps that they can take to protect themselves against this. Um, so I'd love to hear from y'all kind of what Bitcoiners can do to protect their privacy when they're running their own node and what they can do if they're deciding to trust someone else's node instead. Yeah, so, so definitely one option is um, to have at least at least token connectivity um, for your node, either run it behind the proxy, uh, the top proxy, um, or use um, 
like hidden service, but of course that's set up for you. Um, also, I, also, I'm not sure. I wouldn't. I, I wouldn't recommend running only Tor. Um, it might be a bit like like you mentioned the the ongoing denial of service checks earlier. Um, we also have support for ITPD or ITP, um, and there is um, CJDNS, um, which isn't really a privacy network, but an alternative you can use um, to make it make the uh, the um, make it a bit more reliable. Uh, and yeah, um, definitely recommend to use your um, node if you're going to make a transaction and not using someone um, someone else's node first. Yeah, I think um, I'll just chime in on the, the the comment around maybe not running your node purely over Tor. Um, I'm of the opinion I think that's fine for most home node runners that might be running, say, uh, a Raspberry Blitz or a Ronin Dojo or Umbrella or something like that, um, which all thankfully default to Tor. Um, most of the issues um, associated with Tor when people are having headaches with the uh, DOS attacks that Timo mentioned um, are generally where they're kind of connected remotely back to their node and they're trying to pull a wallet balance, which is quite heavy on the data side. Uh, that's where you can see the, the kind of difficulties. But if you're just purely relying on your node running in the background, connecting to a couple of peers to, to get the state of the network and then occasionally pushing the odd transaction, then I'm of the opinion that Tor is fine. Um, the, the difficult bit is kind of connecting your wallet to that node. So um, if you have the ability to do that, uh, locally via your sort of internal network, then uh, I would advise everybody to do that because your kind of uh, user experience will be um, significantly improved. Um, but it's, once you can get that transaction information to your node, generally speaking, kind of uh, just doing the broadcasting over the Tor network seems to be working okay, at least in my experience. Yeah, one thing to add there is um, Tor is a bit easier to attack like to spin up several nodes on, on Tor. So if you're only on Tor, um, I, I can generate like a bunch of onion uh, nodes uh, and, and the keys for, for the hidden services and so on uh, quite easily. Um, so the the attack vector there is more the, the simple attack and you actually connect to to me. Um, like your own connections actually go to me as well. And then I can see, again, see like your transaction and at least cluster them to your uh, Tor identity and not your IP address, but again, to your to your Tor identity. So I, I don't think running only Tor is the holy grail, um, but maybe broadcasting over Tor, uh, or broadcasting your transaction over Tor uh, is definitely, definitely worthwhile. Um, and I think there are tools that allow you to broadcast, like pick out a random peer broadcast the addiction and see if it comes back um, over the network to you. And, and then like directly disconnect after after broadcasting the transaction and never speak with this uh, destroy entity again of the same connection. Yeah, I'm sure you'd open up some potential for transactions to actually fail propagation doing that, but it is a, a valuable way that you can protect your transaction for being being directly tied back to to source node there. Um, the other other two kind of key ways that I've seen that people could protect themselves this way. The first one ultimately is kind of dangerous because it can harm the broader peer to peer network. 
But since these attacks are happening through inbound connections, one of the ways you can prevent this is just not port forwarding your uh, P2P port, that 8333, um, which if you're Tor only, you won't have port forwarded that over ClearNet anyways. Um, but if you are doing ClearNet, that is kind of the, the default and often a recommendation so that then you can you can seed the blockchain to new peers who jump on the network. Um, so you can just prevent that by blocking those inbound connections, not allowing any, but that does mean that as new nodes join the network, there may be less and less peers that are available for them to actually pull down blockchain data from. So it may actually have impacts on initial block download and, and other things there. Um, so that one is one that could be harmful, but is kind of like a maybe a short-term step. Um, and then the second, and I think you, you mentioned this in your article with the specific commands, but you can also just ban these malicious IP addresses right now. That obviously has the shortcoming that IP addresses are pretty flexible, so they can probably switch to new IP addresses quickly. I wouldn't be surprised at all if they do do that rather quickly, since this has been published and getting some some wide visibility. Um, but for now, we can uh, we can ban those specific IP addresses through Bitcoin CLI, so your your Bitcoin node itself will prevent connections from that node. Um, Anything else that you want to add there on kind of what protections you can take or maybe some of the downsides that some of these protections could have if you if you implement them? I think just on your final comment around the, the ban in the IP addresses, I mean, that's might well, that only kind of works while this, uh, you know, actor, whoever they may be, is actively using these IP addresses. And it would be fairly trivial, if I understand it correctly, for them to kind of switch and then get around your kind of local ban, I guess. So um that kind of uh, fix, I guess, used in inverted commas, uh, should shouldn't be looked at as a as a kind of final fix. It's, it's sort of a, a sticking plaster to um, ban the user or entity while they're using that current IP address, which is fairly easy to for them to switch. Yeah, I think it's it's creating like a symptom of it. It's not really addressing the root cause. Um, and I think we're going to get into this later. But and there there could there are a few privacy improvements that we could do um, that would help um, against like someone monitoring or trying to monitor our like the addresses we know about and, and if we send out. The last real question that I had to cover was those future potential improvements that you briefly mentioned, Timo. Like, what are the ways that we can improve the Bitcoin peer-to-peer -peer protocol and help to protect against these attacks? Um, and if you're familiar with the downsides, I'd, I'd love to also kind of hear the trade-offs because whenever we do any of these changes, there are always benefits and there are, are trade-offs that come alongside them. So there has been a proposal called Dendelein a few years ago, um, and this has been reworked and it's now called Dendeline Plus Plus. And there have been some modifications of it like Dendeline One Hop. Um, and what what Dendeline does, it, it, you, you don't spread out your transaction, um, like your own transaction to all your peers. You own, only tell it one peer, which is supposed to forward it to a few other peers. And like there is a line of only one hop, like one one peers knowing it from, from each other peer. And, and some, at some point, one peer decides or knows uh, it should um, broadcast um, the transaction broadly. So if an attacker would um, do the same listening they're doing today, they would find an incorrect or link an incorrect IP address to that transaction. Um, obviously, there, there are problems with peers uh, being able 
to withhold your transactions. Um, for example, um, if I if you see, okay, I'm I'm sending only euro transaction and saying, hey, uh, forward this to your peer. Um, you might say, okay, I, I dropped this transaction. I, I never forwarded. Um, yeah, and and on the other hand, like like the the other, I think big problem with it. Um, where at least a few years ago, I'm, I'm not so sure of what the status right now, um, that there were some new denial of service um, vectors that potentially would be introduced, um, which we didn't really like. And in general, like the complexity of implementing Dendeline or Dendeline++ is quite high. Um, and there should be, um, but there, there is limited developer time and reviewer time, so there should be. Um, you, you should think about like, is it really worth the energy uh, of of putting this in? Is it really like the holy grail? It, it probably is not. Um, um, again, I'm not too familiar with the status right now, but I expect at least um, that some. Um, yeah, some modification of it that's that's easier to implement um, might be might be better at first. Um, yeah, yeah, and I can I can speak to Dandelion Plus Plus a little bit uh, more as well too because the the Miner community actually implemented Dandelion Plus Plus. Uh, I think it was the beginning of 2020. Um, so we've been using Dandelion Plus Plus as the the default method of transaction propagation within the Monero network since then. Uh, I think there was a, an update shortly after it was actually merged into code in, in January 2020 that that made it the default for transaction propagation. Um, and it it is a it's a very powerful tool for privacy. But as you mentioned, it does open up some attack methods. Uh, and one of the the benefits of another chain than Bitcoin implementing these things in a, a live and in a very well a very used and popular uh, cryptocurrency project like Monero is that we've we've gotten to learn a lot from it uh, and the Monero community and the the developers behind it have done amazing work in improving and iterating on the design of Dandelion++ in a, a live network that's undergoing active attacks because um, as we mentioned at the beginning this this same entity along with uh, at least one other entity have been actively attacking Monero nodes for a few years now. Um, I think it was shortly after Dandelion++ was or shortly before Dandelion++ was introduced that uh, the Monero peer-to-peer -peer network first came under attack. Um, I have a blog post on it that I'll I'll share after this, but um, there's some really interesting behavior that they can do to try to attack Dandelion Plus Plus specifically. Like you said, withholding transactions is a key one because normally in Dandelion Plus Plus, what happens is you randomly choose one of your outbound peers to send the initial transaction to in what's called the stem phase. And then that peer will randomly choose another one of their outbound peers and on and on. Uh, I can't remember the exact number of times that that happens, but there's this stem phase where it's just one peer to one peer, one peer to one peer, one peer to one peer. And then after a certain amount of time, and that time is random, it, it depends on what the first node specifies. One of the nodes in the line will essentially do what's called the fluff phase, which is where they then just do this, the standard transaction propagation, where they send the transaction to all of the nodes that they know about. Uh, and spread it to the broader network. And so what that does is that it does provide very strong privacy for the original node on the network because there is no way to definitively, definitively say if the node that you see a transaction from first 
is just one of the nodes in the stem phase or if it was the originator, uh, even if you are the first one, the first one that the transaction is passed to. So there's strong privacy gain there, but that does mean that if that peer that you happen to select initially to send the transaction to is malicious, they can just hold the transaction and not resend it on. Uh, there is a protection against that, which was implemented in Monero, which essentially says that if you don't see the transaction propagated within a certain amount of time, you essentially just fluff it out and use that normal propagation method. Uh, but if you do that, then it you lose the privacy protections of Dandelion++, and so then it could be possible to trace a transaction back to the source node. So there's a lot of complexity involved. There's a lot of, of nuance and trade-offs, and, and we don't have to get too deeply into the design of Dandelion++ here, but... It is a very fascinating tool. It's one that's been helpful in Monero and that's been really battle tested there. Uh, so I would love to see renewed effort and research around how possible it would be to implement something like that in Bitcoin and what the downsides would be to an even bigger network in Bitcoin uh, than Monero there. Yep, definitely agree. Awesome. Well, any uh, any last things y'all want to mention before we go ahead and jump into the, the live Q&A segment? Yeah, nothing for me. I just want to say thanks to the team. I think this has been fascinating from my perspective and I'm sure the, the audience has got a hell of a lot out of this as well. So just wanted to thank you for coming on. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for being willing to, to join for this time, Timo. Thanks for jumping in for this episode of Journey to Sovereignty. And I hope you'll join us for our next live Twitter space every other Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. GMT. Joining us live gives you a chance to listen in, participate, and get your questions answered on the spot. Follow us at FoundationDVCS on Twitter to keep up with the latest news, get notifications when we go live, and much more. See you at the next one, and thanks for joining us on the Journey to Sovereignty.